It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. And joining me as I have uh, two wonderful guests uh, that will be on the show today as we kind of go through the hour. Um, you know, just in case this is the first time you happen to be tuning in, we're going to have kind of a unique show. We've got a, a kind of first-time guest of the show to start, and then we're going to have our very first guest that we've ever had on the show back in 2013 on today. It's going to all come full circle. But in case this is the first time you happen to be tuning in, I want to make sure we kind of give you a little rundown on how it works. Um, you know, I have the privilege of meeting some really cool leaders, doing a lot of really neat things, and whether that's in conferences or at shows or in LinkedIn, whatever it may be, I run across these people, and so I would typically ask them, you know, 100,000 questions and try to figure out what makes them tick. And instead, we created this show to allow you to kind of listen in on that. You know, we ask them these questions, um, and hopefully you can take their answers and their knowledge and the things that they're doing, maybe incorporate them into your own life, into your company, and the things that you're doing down the road. So Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can hear us on the TuneIn Network um, live every Tuesday. Otherwise, um, you know, most people actually kind of come in after the fact and they access us on the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio. You can hear us there. So uh, over the last several years, we've been averaging over you know, 10,000 people a day who are downloading one of our podcast feeds and various platforms. And really, a big thank you to everyone who's tuning in on a regular basis. Um, one of our favorite things to do is also keep the conversation going after the show or even during the show. So we love to have your questions submitted to, to us via Twitter. Um, so if you want to do that, you can pop on Twitter right now. If you hear something you like to talk about you can uh, add that in and send it to at people g2 use the hashtag talent talk my producer mike diligently watches that and is also live tweeting the show as we go along every every tuesday if we get a great question we'd like to throw it in there otherwise if it's after the show and you come in on the podcast we're happy to answer and interact with you there as well um my guests today uh, include Tom Becker, who is the CEO and founder of uh, Telenium. And then, as I mentioned before, we'll have Kim Shepard, who's the CEO of Decision Toolbox, a good friend and mentor of mine. And she'll be on in the show um, at the second half after the commercial break. But let's go ahead and get to Tom uh, Becker. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am doing great. So uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, of course, what your company does. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, first, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um, a little bit about myself. I actually I went to school to uh, to pre law uh, at Northeastern University and actually fell in love with recruiting as an intern. So my uh, I like to think that my my core is recruiting, uh, or what some people call talent acquisition, and uh, essentially moved up through the ranks. And uh, I, I got the bug of data data process process management six sigma when I went to Bank of America. And uh, I've had the, I've basically been fortunate enough to lead really large recruiting teams. So we've been able to move up through where uh, ultimately at uh, Manpower uh, Group, was, I was able to lead a group of about 2,200 recruiters. And last year, I started my own company. Uh, I started a venture two years ago called Telenium. That stands for Talent for the Next Millennium. And we believe the future of talent acquisition is having access to better data, to have better um, metrics, have better process to be a lot more efficient with attracting and bringing on great talent. So, you know, kind of through your career as a recruiter, then you've obviously you've seen some challenges that recruiters have faced and, you know, especially just trying to find the right talent. And, and things have really probably drastically changed from the time that you got involved in it in the beginning through your time with Manpower to yeah. now. But maybe what are some of the driving forces behind what really drove you to create the company uh, based on what you were seeing in the marketplace? That's a great question. So for, for what Telenium is, let me just give you a real quick 
over what we do because we think we hit a niche that a lot of a lot of people and companies just miss. So what we do is we focus in exclusively on the talent acquisition space, and we provide a combination of consulting and we bring a product to bear where they can see how their talent acquisition organization is doing. And the reason why we say both because sometimes what we found is when we work with clients, either big big customers or staffing companies is they'll say, well, you know, Tom, our data is so poor. You know, we, we don't even have a good data structure. Our processes aren't aligned to our data. And that's the niche. Like, that's where we thought what gave us really the idea to create the company. And that's been the driving force. So when we work with companies, what, what I've noticed has changed significantly when I started as a recruiter is now there's access to great data, not only internally but external data. And we want to help companies capitalize that. You know, how, how do they understand, for example, how, what's the gearing ratios for their recruiters? You know, how many openings should they have? You know, how many interviews should uh, a manager have? Which managers within their organization have the worst fill rates and why? Because a lot of times they, they don't really have access to that data. We help them bridge that because now a lot of this information is available internally and externally as well in the market. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's something we hear a lot, especially, you know, recruiting companies that maybe um, getting the right data, you know, staffing firms that we work with seem to always be running around with their heads cut off. So um, they're constantly in that churn and burn and trying to get people placed. So yeah, having great right. data would be a huge advantage, especially if a partner can kind of bring it in for you and show you, you know, where those things are happening and where you're, where you're doing well, where you're not doing well. You know, more and more companies are really kind of starting to rely on analytics. Um, yeah, maybe, we can, right. maybe we can blame Google for that. You know, is kind of giving us this easy access to our web analytics. We start looking at other places inside of companies to put that. When are when are maybe what are the analytics you focus on that you know from a recruiting organization that you need to really see that kind of will really be helpful to the organization? Are there, are there particular ones that you're kind of the first you know the baseline analytics that you're going to look at? Yeah, and a lot of these analytics are production-level analytics. I, I, I think right now, I'd love to know your thoughts, is, is that there's a lot of companies are really interested in the shiny object, which is big data and how to find the best candidate. And I think that's great. You know, there's a lot of really good data, a lot of good companies that are out there, you know, Guild and some of these other, like, like you could find, there's, there's a lot of um, analytics to find what could be a great fit, but what we provide is different than that. What we provide are operational level of metrics to say how good are the tools that you're using. You know, for example, so I'll, I'll give you some operational examples. Like, for example, quality, speed, cost is typically what we go after. But if you're, because there's two worlds that we're really talking about, a Fortune 500 company or a Fortune 1000 company or anybody that's hiring some level of volume, you know, that internal corporate recruiting organization, typically when we work with them, the analytics they should be looking at a baselining is, you know, for example, uh, what is the optimum time to fill? And a lot of the times, when, and, and you know, there's a lot of talk of this over the last couple of years, it's when you look at speed, you know, where is speed is important and what is the optimum? And in some cases, you have to really draw out what that is. So if you look at, for example, time to fill as speed, you look at that as one metric, what you realize is that the average can be very misleading because executive recruiting time to fill could be six months versus high volume recruiting. You know, if you have that much variation in your company, time to fill could be, you know, weeks. So when you look at that time to fill, dimensioning that against lines of business and your internal types of hire, that is usually very eye opening to a head of talent acquisition. They, they typically don't have optics to see that type of data. And then when you dimension that against the hiring manager, you know, all the way down to the manager, you realize that just, just on one metric, just that time to fill, that that usually is one or two issues that are driving, you know, the bad number. Because typically people are just looking at an average. Does that make sense? Like you're just saying it's 45 days, but really the 45 days goes from, you know, six months all the way down to weeks. And knowing where those differences are is so important. Yeah, and that's the, the that's the good place to actually look for for in analytics. Because right. I remember being at a conference, I was asked to speak at you know data analytics and, and human capital, and I listened to three or four speakers in a row talk about how wonderful the more data the better and all this stuff. And they were good speakers and some pretty big organizations. And I got up there and said, it doesn't matter how much data you have, if you don't know where to look, if you're not applying your filters at the right levels, all the data in the world isn't going to stop you from being you know from sucking. 
<laughs> you know, it's like I completely agree. Yeah, if you're going to look at like, time to fill, I think it's a great example. Some some positions you're filling in an hour, right? And other ones are taking six months. Yep. So I would look at data and say, what are my best recruiters doing, right? What are they? How are they getting those positions filled so quickly? And how can we learn from them? And then what are my worst recruiters doing? And do we need to give them more training? Do we need? Is there something they're missing in the process, or do they need to be you know fired? I mean, they're just not not making it. Whereas I see people sort of focus in the medium, in the middle, and then and that that yeah. to me is eh, I get lost there. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> I like to look at what the best and the worst are doing. So I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. I, you know, there's this um, in some companies I work, they call a K performer, their top performer. You know, you want to look at what the the top percentiles are doing. And then baseline according to that, just like you said, because a lot of times people use the word baselining, but they're not really baselining. You know, for me, when we baseline with a client or what companies should be doing when they baseline their data is really look at what are the moving averages for any metrics. Speed is one of them. Quality is another great one. Uh, like just hiring manager satisfaction or candidate satisfaction. I, and because people pick too much data and it's hard to baseline when you're looking at 20 different things. So you and I are definitely in the same camp. Just pick three or four driving metrics and really pick on those and then see, because half of the equation is seeing what they're doing and great. So we got a number. It takes, you know, three weeks to fill a position. Great. But what does that really do? Learn what those people are doing and then build best practices around that that can be shared. But, but my big caveat there, the big, um, the big hole that you can fall into very quickly right. is thinking that everything is a monolith within your organization, right? You have to know how to stratify the data Right. This is high volume recruiting. This is executive recruiting. Maybe this is tech recruiting because maybe tech recruiting is so unique because the scarcity of skills. But there's there's tech there's science data science techniques where you can see those stratifications rather than just people thinking that what they're what they are. But I, I think that's absolutely the right approach, and and being able to do that is so important. Yeah. So figure out what it is you really want to measure, and then then use your analytics to make up your mind that that because it's a better absolutely. way to go. I know in 2016 you wrote an article about partnering with business and talent acquisition. How important is it for you to have that partnerships and, and those types of relationships uh, for companies like the ones you're trying to service to be successful? It's, it's so critical, and, and the term is so often overused. You know, like, I'm, I'm sure everyone does an eye roll when they're listening right now, and the partner with the everyone says that. But I think there's ways to do that. So, so I was able to do um, a few sessions with some clients. And what does that really mean? And I'll give you some real hardcore examples. So if you're if you're if you're in talent acquisition and you're working with either you know the executive of that group or a hiring manager, what we tend to see is understand where the delighters are for the business. So learning the business is important, but bring but they want you to be an expert on hiring for their positions. So well, what we always say to those recruiters or the talent acquisition leader to train everyone else is. Don't go there with a pen sort of waiting, you know, to get the order of what you're going to fill. Come to that discussion with data. Come to that discussion with information that says, but, you know, by the way, you know, on a, on a, and I'll just pick on tech, on, on this .NET position, you know, it's a scarce position. Our average time to fill is eight weeks or, or six months or whatever it is for your company. Here's Here's my plan. Here's five people that we should – be talking, you know, talking to. And I looked at your social media profile, you know, and I learned that here's people you've worked with in the past. So when you partner, you have to bring data and intelligence. And I think that requires the recruiter and the talent organization to, re- to really learn their craft and bring it and connect it to them the business. Does that make sense? I think that's usually the gap. Yeah, it does. And, and early on, you started to say something about a delighter. So can you talk about what is a delighter? How do you define that? And so cool. So in this one, so there's one company we did work with where we talked about speed and uh, time to something. And in this one company, the the delighter was speed, but in a very specific way. So what the business told us was, it's important that you bring us candidates, but I don't care that you know you can wait three weeks to bring me the right person. But once you've identified that person, speed is important. So the delighter in that discussion was when we identify someone, we're going to become highly engaged with that business, and that's how we delight that, that those sets of hiring managers. But knowing what are those delighters is so critical. For me, bringing data in is another delighter, right? Like, like don't 
So, for example, the, the table stakes for being a great recruiter or having a great internal recruiting organization or being a great staffing company is just being able to get an order and go fill the order, right? That's the table stakes. For me, the delighters are bringing in data and information that truly is going to question. The manager will say, wow, you, you're not only bringing in data that's at the macro level, but you're bringing in data that's specific to hiring this position where they may say, I thought this was going to be filled in 45 days, but you could take longer because now you're at least bringing me data and information. And that, that is absolutely a delighter. And what, every time we've done work with a business on voice a customer or, you know, asking them what would, what would be a delighter from the town acquisition, it's usually in those areas. Well, I love the term. That's a great, uh, a great way, however you phrase it, but to kind of identify those things, especially in your, in your sales process and then in your process once you've brought the client in to be able to make sure that they're happy and that you're doing those things that, you know, are going to make them ultimately want to keep you around. So that, that's great. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, the, and the process is really quick. There's this thing called the Kano analysis, K-A-N-O. We've used that in the past. It's a great tool because you can, you can pull out in, in interviews and in surveys what are table stakes, what are delighters, and what are must-dos. Like, and when you have a conversation, when you build your entire talent organization around those things, you know that you can't implement delighters unless you're flawlessly executing the must-haves. Does that make sense? Like that, that's the great approach that we've seen works. But knowing the difference, if you try to delight without flawlessly executing on the must-haves, it's going to fall short. And right. actually, it, it'll have a negative impact. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't come in there and deal with speed, but then, you know, if you, if you are able to get the positions in quickly, but you get them terrible people, that doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> Exactly. Right. You can be as fast as you want, but you're going to be terrible people. Right. right. Well, and I know you wrote another article uh, kind of around gamification in recruiting. Mm-hmm. So how is game of, mm-hmm. gamification being used, and why is that better than maybe a traditional model or other ways we're, we're traditionally thinking about recruiting? Yeah, and, you know, here's another term that's, that's so often <laughs> misunderstood as well. I, in that article, I, 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 it was so much fun for me because we were able to try to implement some of these things. Um, when gamification, when used correctly, is really a system in which, or it's, just, it, it's truly a game, right? There's a set of rules that's understood, that's closed in terms of, you know, what do you need to do to achieve, what you need to achieve, and then you have to take the next level. How do you badge the right people? How do they get the right level of, of visibility? And how do they come up with challenges with each other to performance? And, and I think given, you know, a lot of the times when you hear a lot of people say, well, I'm hiring a lot of millennials, they're really hard to motivate. That's where gamification is so important um, because ideally the future of performance management is self-governance you know, the, the, where the person is seeing their own data, they're understanding, they're going to their manager when they, when they have an obstacle or their leader or whomever. I think that's the future of performance management because to try to, to, try to, to basically move performance and keep, keep the, the, um, the energy high, keep the motivation high, that's a difficult thing to do. So, I've seen uh, companies implement some gamification models where, for example, you know, the, um, the person that achieves in, in, in staffing, it's submits, right? And you got to get your submits out that yield interviews, that yield starts. The one that, that gets to the 10 first, you know, they get to put out a badge that says, I, I did that first. You know, if they do that three weeks in a row, they get some sort of a, of a, of a, a goal. But I think the pieces of gamification that makes it different and why it's better is there's a visibility component where they can compete with each other. Not only do they get more energy out of it, but then they, they get the visibility and the recognition, which is so important, right, because they're competing and being recognized. And I think a lot of times you see that. And right now I, I would say there are very few, if at all, uh, true companies that are, that are implementing gamification performance management. I think it's, it's still really new days. And I'd love to hear from you if you've seen any. I, I haven't seen many. I've probably seen one handful that's actually starting to truly implement, you know, gamification within their performance management. Yeah, that deep into performance management, no. I mean, we certainly see that at some level into sales, maybe, into particular departments. But I I can't think of any examples where it's gone, at least how you're envisioning it, right, where it's just kind of full-blown into performance management. But it may be something that's coming in a... Maybe someone will write a good book about it. So, <laughs> Speaking of books, uh, I want to make sure we ask you yeah. one of our favorite questions, and that is, is there a book that you're reading right now that you might tell us about? Yes, uh, Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read this one. It's really, really good. It's just it, They give you all kinds of hints around being productive. They say life and in business, but um, 
they really dig into what are your personal motivators, and you can do a lot of internal inventories of what you're doing. I'm three-quarters of the way through the book, and I realized that the things that don't motivate me, I'm realizing and understanding why, and I have to learn how to sort of get through them. But it's Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg. Yeah, it's a book that's come up a few times on the show, and I, I need to make sure I uh, we actually read it. So um, we've had a few guests uh, bring it up, but one we just finished was um, the hard thing about hard things. So if you need another suggestion, that's a great book to to read. I do actually. Yeah, when down. you finish we'll, that we'll one, you can move on to the next one. <laughs> and as a reminder, everybody, we will have all of our uh, book suggestions from our guests. We put them on the blog uh, as we get those blog posts up, and you can find that on peopleg2.com. Um, you know, you mentioned a, a lot of, of different things today, and certainly a lot of great impact things for for companies especially in your space or anyone thinking about talent if someone was to just have taken away one thing if they dozed out through most of it but they you wanted them to remember one thing what is it that you said that they should have taken away oh gosh it's going to be really simple but you, you really can't manage what you don't measure and in talent acquisition there's not enough measurement going on of few metrics that drive you know that i would say just put more time in measuring performance as opposed to the shiny object I'm glad you articulated it that way because I, I think I knew what you were trying to say earlier, but I'm glad we brought, it, brought that kind of full circle because you're right. You can't measure it. If, you can't manage it if you don't measure it, and that's super, super important. Uh, you know, How can people get a hold of you or learn more about your company if they're interested in learning more? Yeah. Uh, so either on, on Twitter at Tom Becker, um, and I'm also our, – our company is Telenium, and it's, it's a combination of talent and millennium, so T-A-L-E-N-N-I-U-M.com. Um, so either me personally, Tom Becker, or Telenium.com. It's a great way to get a hold of me. Well, it sounds like they should reach out. And, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today and giving our listeners a lot to think about. Hopefully we can have you come back at some point and uh, give everyone an update on how you're doing. I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we'll take this quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with our second guest, Kim Shepard. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Uh, if you're just joining us, you missed a great guest uh, with Tom Becker, the CEO and founder of uh, Telenium. But now uh, we want to make sure you uh, know to tune in to iTunes and iHeartRadio. If you want to come back and listen to any past shows, you can find us there on our podcast. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com where all of those shows are listed as well. Uh, next up, I'm uh, glad to welcome back to the show uh, Kim Shepard, the CEO of Decision Toolbox. She has lots of news and things going on, and it's been... Well, 2013 is our very first show, and she was our very first guest, so I'm pretty sure a lot's happened since then, so we're going to try to get caught up um, with all of that. But don't forget, you can submit your questions via Twitter if you want to, at PeopleG2, and use that hashtag, Talent Talk. But Kim, welcome back to the show. Chris, I was so good on the first show that it took you four years to bring me back. That's right. That's right. You did so good that everyone else wanted to be on, and you got (laughs) behind on a very long list. (laughs) Well, tell everyone who doesn't maybe know who you are, why don't you tell them who you are and what you do? 
Sure. So um, I've been with a company called Decision Toolbox for 17 years as the CEO, and uh, it's an unusual company. It's high volume, low fee based. But what's really cool about the company is it's 100% virtual. We have 100 employees. A lot of them stay at home moms working, you know, from home offices. So it's all about non mascara management, which is one of my favorite things to do. Right. And um, just recently, we were acquired. Uh, by a, a cool company called Engage to Excel. So if you think about it, um, Engage to Excel, they onboard, engage, reward, and retain people. Okay. So one of the things that's always bothered me is I go around saying we hire great people for great companies. But you, if you have no line of sight to that, you don't really know if it's true. So it's exciting oh, after okay. 17 years to actually be able to see if we put in a, a lemon – we see that it's a lemon. If we put in an okay. apple, we see that it's an apple. And uh, we're the now the um, human capital space's first full life cycle continuum. This doesn't exist. Where re- you get candidates, you recruit them, you get them hired, you get them onboarded, you get them engaged and excited, you get them rewarded and length of service awards, and you retain them. So it's the full thing, which you would think that that would have been around for a long time, but it, it hasn't been. Right. And that sort of it sounds like a really nice complimentary fit for both you and for them, right, if they didn't have the recruiting piece. So they could measure it, but they didn't have anyone helping them bring in the right people for their clients as well. So what sort of got you to that point that you decided it was time to bring on that kind of partnership and to take the company in that direction? You know, we we kind of, you get to a place where you stall out a little bit, and then you either have to do, you know, a spin in the sand and take it to the next level, meaning from a $10 million to $25 million or from a $25 million to $100 million. So, you know, I've been, this is not my my first rodeo. So I've been in a couple of companies where you see the, you know, what happens from 2 million to 5, from 5 to 10, from 10 to 20, that kind of thing. And I couldn't get us over the mark where I was really blessed to have people that's been with me for over a decade. And you kind of hold them hostage a little bit if you can't give them upward mobility. And if you stall out on growth, you can't give them upward mobility. We as business owners think of growth as more revenue. Right. But when you look at the cultural fit of it, more growth really represents additional opportunities, growth opportunities for your people. So it was almost by accident. I was getting ready to take the company to market. And uh, a client of ours was looking, we approached them and said, you know, you're, you're supplying nurses, clinicians for hospitals. Why don't we team up and we'll provide finance and accounting, sales and marketing, call center, all the other ancillaries that's not the clinicians, and it'll be a new river of cash to both of us. And they said after several meetings, that's a really good idea, and we think we'll build it. So then one of the guys that was part of that team then joined Engage to Excel and the CEO he had worked with for years in the past. Right. He said, you know what, I think you need to talk to Kim. So then we started talking, and it was just it was really one of those, you know, you and I both belong to a CEO roundtable where we hear war stories of acquisitions <laughs> gone south, right? Right. And every once in a while you hear of one that was just yummy. Which is the only reason why anyone agrees to any of it, right? Right. You're one good story. Right, right. I, I'm that one <laughs> all, good story. Of all the bad dates, they finally found yeah. someone to marry, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we are that story because it's just, we are, you know, it, what said a lot to me is when the deal was going down, the CEO said, you know, we need to, we need you for a three-year commitment. And Chris, I don't do that much anymore. You know, I've been in this game a long time. So mm-hmm. it wasn't operationally it wasn't you know my sales acumen it was it was really the cultural piece that i'm part of the cultural glue and the fact that they valued that so high said a lot to me right because i knew who i was joining now i was new and and since the acquisition which took place um the end of december this past december i keep we keep all our people we keep our name we keep our processes in place we're just going to grow 5x which will provide Mm -hmm. those upward mobility opportunities for everyone well i i know that sort of learning some of the things that you were doing i thought of you as an unconventional leader and i think those that they met you or have seen you speak or read your books will know that so you know when you hear someone call you that uh what do you think what's sort of your response do you feel like you're an unconventional leader or does it just feel like common sense to you i think um hovering in common sense makes you unconventional so I don't follow business um, models. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I'm an ex, I'm a journalist. 
what do I know? And so when presented with a business problem, I solve it in, in a way that makes sense to me, that gets the job done fast. So, you know, unconventional is the nice word. You know, I get kooky. I get crazy. Right. I get, you know, uh, so unconventional is the polite word to attach to my management style. <laughs> um, but, you know, my first book was called The Biting School of Management. So I came right out of the gate with let's, you know, let's talk about let's get the job done. Let's get right. it done. So. Right. Yeah, I, I've had this argument with, I'm writing my book now. I, was, I wanted something really fun like that. And my publisher went, yeah, we think we want something a little yeah. bit less. <laughs> yeah. That's why I self-published. That's right. I'm like, oh, I want to do what Kim did. Well, I know, you know, you've done lots of writing. You talked about the books. Um, you also do quite a bit of writing in articles in different places. So you did an article, uh, Fresh Take on Women's uh, Business Leaders. You know, so during your time as, as CEO here with Decision Toolbox, you said about 17 years yep. and now with the new company, do you feel that women leaders have evolved the way in which you would hope or maybe maybe business organizations have evolved to accept and, and take in women the way which you say? Or are there still a lot to do there? So, of course, there's a lot to do there, and I don't want to undermine that at all, although I think that most women in business might, I'm just going to throw, I'm not going to throw this out as the way it is, but something they should think about is, Mm -hmm. do they have a chip on their shoulder? Because if you think about it, you know, women always saying we need more power, we need more power, and of course we do. Um, I mean, there's glass ceilings and there's, there's, you know, dissension and there's, there's all of that, but the reality is, is women are way more empowered than they think. I mean, when car makers are making cars, they're not looking at the men. They're asking the women where they want the cup holders, right. you know, and, and right. the cars. Are being, when the last political um, contest for president, I mean, the women's vote was so critical because they have more power than, than they think. And often I'm asked about, you know, women being stifled at work and wanting to, you know, cl- climb the, the rungs on the ladder. And, and they always look, and this bugs me, they always look at like the Fortune 100 companies and there's not enough women at the helm. I would push back and say, is there a lot of women who want to be at the helm of that? Because I wouldn't. Yeah. Are they in small businesses? Are they in uh, medium-sized businesses? Like, where do they sit as an overall? Absolutely. Right. And if you look around, I mean, if you look at the book of lists in Orange County and all of the women names of the owners, mm-hmm. so they're not they're not GM, and they're, although the, they do have a, a female uh, CEO, but they're not, the, they're not the big tech players. Yeah. But the majority of the businesses have a lot of women at the helm as owners, and, and, and these are the businesses that keep business going. Right. So I think um, that if women what, – what has worked for me is I kind of fashion myself as being more androgynous. I'm not waving a flag for women's rights. I'm not putting myself in a female blo- bo- box. I'm not – you know, I'm, I'm androgynous. I'm just Kim, whatever Kim happens to be doing or, or whatever, and um, I think that has served me well. So if we take that sort of idea and we apply it to maybe some of the troubles that Uber's having – I mean, do you think that's because there are women who just don't want to work in that environment? Is that what you're saying? Or or is there also some other piece of that that we need to still maybe think about doing? I mean, they're what, 76%, you know, white males on their in their management. Right. I mean, it, it, they obviously have some level of a problem. So. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's a priority for them if they made it part mm-hmm. of the culture. And if they haven't, shame on them because, you know, women bring so much to the table. I mean, right. I think you need testosterone and you need estrogen and you need a nice balance of it because the and, and instead of a competition, you know, or a good old boys club, you, if you if you mix it up right, which I'm always cognizant of when we're hiring, you need both of those energies because they come at the same problem from totally different angles. I mean, women are natural multitaskers. You know, we were just, even though, whether you have children or not, you are taught to be able to, you know, diaper a baby and cook dinner and make online decisions and run a business. And we just do that. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, you have so much kind of thought around this ideas. You've had the Bite Me School of Management. You had to get scrappy. You're both great books in completely different ways that kind of address different things. So any plans to write another book or something else in the future? You know, I, I I'm sure I will. Um, I just don't know what path it's going to take yet, but it's mm-hmm. going to be along the lines of a chicken soup for the soul. And let me tell you why. This was so brilliant. They got everyone else to do their writing for them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that math, you know. So, and, and I'm just a natural inquisitor. So I would, whatever the topic is going to be, I'd like to ask, you know, hundreds of people their opinions and then assemble a book. I just haven't picked the 
topic yet. Right, right. We've done a little bit of that with the radio show, but I found I thought it was going to be easier than it was to go back and really distill what somebody else thought and what they, they did. So, yeah, good, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of books, is there any books that maybe you recently read or one that you might suggest that people take a look? Yeah, so I'm always reading, but I like to flip-flop. So I do a business book, and then I do a um, – I like true stories. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan of, of fiction. And so I just finished uh, Challenger Sale. Okay. Which is a great book. Great book. More difficult, though, to actually implement. I mean, the I full. <laughs> you know what? It's, but, but if you embrace it, as you, when you first read it, if you embrace it on just trying to identify the players on your team. Right. And who are they? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, absolutely. Was, and then that gets you into it a little bit more. Right. I think I'm trying to remember the category, but I remember identifying at a salesperson who I thought was really good, but found out that this person was just more of a um, relationship relationship person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they would get stuff. It was always very slow and steady and uh, consistent. But when I bring in somebody else who was that different personality. Right? right. I used to think we wanted to be friends with everyone and we wanted to get relationships built and do all this stuff. And somebody else would come in with no relationship and kick our butt right. from you know competition. It was like, oh, that's what we need to do. And well, challenger sale explain that. Yeah, and what they're really what the people that are good challenger salespeople look for the point of pain, right? And then you know a, a less advanced person will try to put their finger on the point of pain. A chal- a true challenger will say, let's walk around this point of pain, right? And then let's see how I can because I'm, I'm so tired of the phrase, you know, I'm solution based seller. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first you have to identify the problem, and that more more often than not is the problem. Right, identifying the problem. And we don't know what really really where to focus yeah. in on that. Yeah. So, so the other book now I'm just jumping into, and I just started it last night is uh, Boys in the Boat. Oh, I love that book. I've, everybody's just love that. Book. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. to I think that was uh, for the Orange County Book Club that we run. I th- it might be top one or two of all oh, really? time for everybody. I mean. Leadership, you know, lessons without them being a leadership lesson, you yeah. know, it's real life and you have history in there and you have this team camaraderie stuff going. I mean, it's just fantastic. So. Yeah. And that's my type of reading because, you know, I, I love a good story. You know, you hear a good story, you keep it. Often when I read things, I don't retain as much as I want because it wasn't put in story form. Right. And that's, I think, why when I do write my next book, it will be a series of stories because I think there's great lessons in there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was working on my book and my wife was reading my one of my chapters and she said, you know, this is really great when you're telling stories, but when you get to the business stuff, I'm not paying attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, well, everything can't be a story. I have to eventually come out of the story and tell you what it was. But they can be. Yeah. <laughs> they can. A really good friend of mine, David Harder. Did I ever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Didn't so, David speak at our uh, conference? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's great. So he's writing a book right now. Um, he always seems to be writing a book. He's he always a writing a book. Yeah, this yeah. is a big, big time publishing okay. deal. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, uh, career development for 12 year olds. Okay. And in it, he tells stories that you can't escape them because they're whether they're true stories or they're uh, manufactured stories. He he's delivering all the lessons that you're getting from it through a story. So I remember when he was sending me a couple of chapters of the book, and I would read it, and I'd be driving home from someplace, and that story would just like jump out at me, and it's just it was like right. I can't run away from it. Right. And that's brilliant writing. Yeah, I mean, those stories are just seem to really connect us. I think people forget to, to tell stories and to use them. Just You don't have to have the world's best story, but any story, if you right. can use to connect to new people, your employees, whatever it may be, that can help you deliver that, that message you need to be right. delivered. It's so important. And, you know, I don't think that people realize how many the, – the depth of the stories that they have. They're, we are manufactured to be more entertained by someone else's story. Like recently, there was a, a – a, uh, an event here in Irvine, actually in Newport Beach, called the Women of Influence, and I was on a panel, and um, I was getting a lot of applause, and you know, I was being well received for telling my stories, and just at a, about the point where they're giving you a little too much, you know, acknowledgement, I thought to myself, and I said to the group, I said, you know, you guys do know that all of you have these stories, you're just being entertained by mine, but if I Stop talking, and you started talking and telling me your story. Yours is just as entertaining. And people don't realize mm-hmm. the depth of experience that they carry with themselves because they, tend to, they have a tendency to think, well, if I don't have the stage, then no one wants to hear my story. Not true. Or, you know, they don't realize that the greatest – I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I'm, one of the, I'm often asked, you know, what's one of the biggest lessons you ever learned or, you know, things that, that you stumbled over. And, and this, I can't believe I'm going to do this on radio, but um, I was <laughs> 30, 
13 years old. My mom had a coffee shop in Silicon Valley. Right. Um, I'm working there, um, slinging hash, and two guys were at the counter, and they said, nice butterflies. And I turned around, and I went, what? And they said, nice butterflies. Turns out I was wearing white pants, and my underpants had butterflies on them, and they could see through the... Well, that one lesson, I will never, ever, ever leave my house without matching underwear just in case right. so it's these silly stupid lessons i mean think if you shared that with a kid with a child they would always check the pattern on their underwear before they get dressed right right it's just a, it's the smallest thing yeah but so do you think that some of that the storytelling or us thinking about that has anything to do with us being extroverted or introverted because i notice extroverts don't seem to have any problem taking that stage and then just telling a story right but we right. have other people who don't naturally I mean, program that way. Their parents didn't talk to them that way. So maybe if you're not in that natural way, do you have some ideas on how people might think about starting to get those stories out and using that? Yeah. You know, start with one. Yeah. Get get another introverted person and share with them your story and see what kind of response you get. I mean, the the danger of being extroverted is that you take someone else's oxygen, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so there's a big difference to me being outgoing or, you know, if I'm – but – you never want to suck someone else's oxygen out, and uh, you know, and it, and it kind of goes to you know, disc. Yeah, the the D's and the I's, which I naturally am, have a natural tendency to think that that's the one you want. Those are the letters you want. <laughs> until you need a, a spreadsheet calculated, until yeah. you need to analyze data, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then you go, your D and your I is not going to get the job done. Right, you need to see it at S. So. And that's a good reminder because um, I don't know if people know this, but um, right now, TonyRobbins.com slash D-I-S-C. He's giving away free disc profiles. It's an expensive test. It's a great test. It we is. use it internally all the time. In fact, we just, because he's offering it for free because I'm cheap, um, our whole team went and everyone went and did it. And then we you know, shared it on Google Drive and put it in subfolders based on department. And so everyone's been using that to help understand each other better. You know, there always seems to be one person who's having a harder time talking to another person in a different department, and I just say, go read their profile. Yep. Go read it. And they read it, and they come back, and they go, oh, I didn't realize that they just prefer the day- me to tell them in this way. Right. Great. Now you know. And they go tell them in that way, and then problem solved, and they're suddenly all getting you right. know, well together. So uh, it's a great resource. I don't know how much longer he's planning on uh, doing that. I'm sure as long as it's working well and people are joining his mailing list, he'll offer yeah. it for free. But That's a good, I would highly recommend that everyone do that because an, an exercise we did was we put tape on the ground and, with, you know, because you go up to 100. Uh-huh. So there's 100 and then there's, you know, the next mark is 80 and the next one. Well, there's 99 where you're standing. I think I'm about 98. Right? Next yeah. Time, right. Yeah. 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 But being able to visually <laughs> see where the people are on that spectrum and mm-hmm. then it gives you a better visual on how to interact with them. Right. And because, you know, C's and S's need the oxygen of D's and I's. Right. And D's and I's can't move the ball down the road without the C's and S's. Yeah. And, and if you don't know what these uh, letters that we're sort of giving out, I'm, I'm going to mess them up a little bit. But D is sort of your level of leadership. I is sort of your interpersonal abilities. S is your, is it steadiness or is it your, I forget, A and C is your cautiousness. So, but those all play into your level of uh, you being a leader, maybe being technologically inclined, all these sort of different things. Um, but I find that people really understand it a lot better. But uh, for us, what we learned this last time that I hadn't paid as much attention to is there is your natural style, which is sort of, it used to be called your home style like many, many years ago. So that's sort of when you're not, you're just being yourself and you're right. not thinking about it. But then it's your active style when you're thinking about it or people are watching you. And that's more work. And right. I noticed there were some people who had, I mean, the highest S I've ever seen in their natural setting. But when they think people are watching them, they have almost no S. Right. That's right. a huge conflict. Yeah, it's more it's more how you perceive yourself right. than what you truly are. That's that's where the story is told. Right. So we we kind of did some talking around that with some people, like you know, yeah. <laughs> if you're naturally here, <laughs> maybe you need to think about that yeah. and not be uncomfortable all the time because you're trying to put on a show for people, right, or, or whatever. You know, another book I really like that's been out for for a while now is uh, uh, Strengths Finders. Yeah. That's a great book that basically tells and, – and for anyone who doesn't like to read, there's really only like 37 pages of reading. The rest of the book yeah, is yeah. just classifications of your personal strengths, but it pulls out your five strongest traits mm-hmm. and basically says don't try to – you don't have to – like there's certain things I am completely lacking. Rather than trying to fill them and get better at them, put people around me that are good at those and be 
play to your strengths, not to your weaknesses. And this is something you taught me, and I'm going to mention in the book about some of the things that you did in identifying strengths and then putting that on an Excel, Excel sheet and figuring out where you were weak right. and going back and trying to address that. And for us, we went back and addressed that in a really significant way and found that that actually had an impact on diversity in our company without us ever coming out and, and saying we want to be more diverse or ever doing anything around right. that. We just said, I want people who, are, who have uh, in their strengths an area we don't have any strengths. Yep. And magically, the people coming to me for final interviews were totally different than the people I was getting before. And in the way they thought, in the way they looked, just everything about them was different. And that's really helped us. Oh, I bet. Going forward. just in, And so it, I think it's a better way if you want to have a, if you want to think about diversity in your company. And instead of saying, well, here's our spreadsheet. We have too many of this people. Let's go get more of these people. <laughs> I think that's inherently causes an issue. Right. right. It's politically an issue. It just there's all these issues around it. And I so for us, it was a way to, to kind of get around that without ever having to think about it. It's yeah. kind of one of those nice accidents. Yeah, that's great. And diversity just doesn't mean ethnic or age or, or right. you know, diversity is the way you're wired. Right. It's thought. For me, it's diversity of yeah. thought, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to look at this problem and I'm going to say we should do these five things and you're going to raise your head and go, uh, no, yeah. we should do the sixth thing. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're right. And I didn't then, see that one. <laughs> I didn't see that one because if your organization is just full of people who think like you, which yeah. is natural, right? We right. hire people from the schools we went to, who are in the fraternities we were in, that were, whatever those commonalities are. And you suddenly get people that are just not totally carbon copies of you, but similar to you. Yeah. And, and you lose out on that thought. You know what I'm really liking these days is that um, for so many years, everybody talked about the hard skills, someone's hard skills. Right, right, hard right. skills. And, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in the soft skill stuff. That's squishy. That's uh, <laughs> that's culture crap. And, right. uh, and now people are realizing that, particularly in the process of recruitment, you vet to hard skills, but you hire to soft skills. Right. How do they talk? How are they wired? What are they? How do they make me feel? You know, and I'm, and more and more people at higher ranks and companies are realizing this now, and I'm just thrilled that they are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a big, kind of recent big change, I would say. You know, people are starting to think about it a little bit differently, and maybe at least they're becoming more cognizant themselves about what they need, too. I think right. it wasn't just that soft skills they didn't care about, but they didn't really know which ones they cared about. Right. And that started to become more apparent with different books and things like Strength Finders. I mean, it's... Yep. What, Eight dollars or ten dollars, you can get your you five. Do it online. Do it online, and yeah. then know everything you want. And they have some other cool ones, like your ten entrepreneurial strengths. So that's really neat to to use. I've used that to kind of do some stuff. That, but yeah, they have a lot of uh, Gallup does amazing, uh, amazing. They things. really do, yeah. And they just put out their big two hundred and fifty page PDF report. I don't know if you had time I to have read not, it. No. Yeah, it basically says it's tough out there. <laughs> that's the abridged version. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't read the book. Thank you for the book review. It's tough out there. I love it. <laughs> People still aren't engaged. We're still, you know, we're still not there, which means a lot of room to grow. But you know, give them a reason to be engaged. Right. I mean, the, I, I don't think that CEOs uh, really realize that how what they have. You know, for so many years, we've heard uh, people are our most important asset. Oh, really? What are you doing? To, what are you, What are you doing with that? You know, right. and it was just a line that got thrown out. And the reality is, it is. I mean, if you if you hire someone who's good, and you make them, you can put them in an environment where they can be better, mm-hmm. and then they're happy. And this this junk about you know work life balance. If I hear that phrase one more time, it's not work life balance. It's life balance. There's only one of us. That's Right. One of us. And, you know, I think the millennials and the Gen Ys are are figuring it out where it's the baby boomers that are kind of conflicted um, because they think they have to be on you know one side or that oh, I'm in my personal life. I'm in my professional life. Back and forth, back and forth. And it's just one life, you know, just groove with it. Yeah, I feel like I put my toe in each both of those camps, just kind of where I'm at with my age. And I had to kind of. I almost gave myself permission for that life balance. Like, it's okay if I'm going to be gone for three hours to do something personal in the middle of the day. Because I'm going to come home and work three extra hours probably right. on my computer at night. Right. Because I have things I need to do and get caught up. But I would used to feel guilty about the three hours that I took away. And not and didn't feel bad about the three hours that I took away from my family at night when no. I was doing... I just need to do the work. Yeah. And so I had to give myself at least eliminate part of that guilt and that pressure. Were you, that, were you raised Catholic? No, no, but <laughs> early on, I had that Catholic guilt going right. on. It's like, okay, that's, right. so that's got to be done. It's like, am I getting it done? Yes, I'm getting it done. Yeah. Does it matter when done. I do it? No. Well, and when is enough enough? Yeah. I mean, tell yourself when I get to this point, this is good. You did good. Pat yourself on the back. 
And that's a super important thing that we have to remember is that that is one of the biggest things about culture that people don't think, realize or really think about is recognition. It's just that providing the opportunities, giving the opportunities. Another great thing that we learned from you was the green flags. I mean, <laughs> right, just giving people these opportunities to go in there and say, thank you. That so-and-so did a great job. And right. everyone else can run in and say, yeah, they did do a great job. Way to go. Yeah. We have a kudos, we have a, a monthly newsletter and we have a kudos corner where everybody brags on everybody else and it works out great. Yeah, those are and I love that kudos corner. That's another, and as you grow, I've wondered if, if you had to sort of adjusting because we're we're growing and we've noticed that the water cooler is getting a little busy uh, <laughs> with, the, with the green flag, which is great. But you know, yeah. you got to got to think about it. <laughs> so, any other uh, cool things that you guys are doing inside the organization? Maybe now, especially since you've you've bought on a whole other part. Yeah, so it's 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 been really fun learning to look larger you know like we have clients that you know we never asked about after you bring our people aboard you know how do they do what's going Mm -hmm. on and so so that's been that's been a lot of fun it's something that's just starting to roll out now because at first it was a you know was it we got married and then we had to go on a honeymoon you know and um so now it's learning how to to cross-pollinate and 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 it's all for the benefit of the people that are being hired right absolutely yeah well it sounds like you're doing amazing things as always and uh can't wait for your chicken soup of the recruiting (laughs) soul or whatever it's going to be called here but (laughs) i'm so glad you could come back on the show and uh maybe we'll not wait so many years next time to have you come back so I'd uh, love to keep up with you and what, what, what you're doing. Uh, you know, I asked this question of the last guest. Kind of, this is actually came from Dave Burke as he suggested we ask this question. It's been really helpful. What's the one thing that you think someone should have taken away from our conversation today? That they are special. And they don't have to be told that they're special. They don't have to be on the stage. Everybody has a story. Everybody is of value. Well, it's a great one to have, and uh, hopefully people heard it. So uh, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in now not only recruiting, but all of these other things? If they're interested <laughs> in Decision Toolbox, what's the best way for them to find out more? Yeah, so they can just go to the to Google, Google Decision Toolbox. Um, if they wanted to reach out to me, I'm, I'm reachable through LinkedIn and all the different social media so sites. Kim Shepard on LinkedIn or dtoolbox.com is or the Kim website. Or Kim Shepard underscore DT for Twitter. Okay, and uh, we probably maybe spell your last name just in case because not all shepherds are spelled the same way. But actually, it's just like German shepherd. Just like German shepherd. Okay, good. And not everyone knows how to spell either, so (laughs) we need that help. All right, well, thanks so much for being on the show. Again, we'll have you back here real quick. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in uh, today, and hopefully maybe learn something you can take home uh, or back to your own career in a positive way. Next week, uh, my guests will include Angie Kramer, CEO and founder of Jobless, and then Torrance Freeman, the head of HR at GNA Partners. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.